0: The
1: Doctor Who Show, with Rob and Dave G'day I'm Rob, and I'm Dave And you're listening to The Doctor Who Show, closing out the month of August 2021 Dave, August is already over
0: We have already started planning basically up until our Christmas episode for this year And that is a little bit frightening, but so be it
1: Yeah, and wondering where we'll fit in Jodie's next uh, series They still haven't given us a date for that, all that kind
0: of good stuff no, they promise us a series is coming, presumably before Christmas. Not that many months left.
1: No, that's right. But look, this month, our topic is our favourite eras in Doctor Who magazine comics, the comic strip in Dwim.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's a uh, topic that could be very, very large, but we're going very, very small and personal, maybe a little bit nostalgic. Uh, and I hope that'll be an interesting listen for our listeners.
1: Absolutely but look before we get to that I do want to do a quick plug for our recent 14 for 14 episode if people haven't heard that It's where we basically talk about Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall leaving Doctor Who Uh, We go through 14 different potential doctors to replace Jodie We do a bit of showrunner talk as well And because of that episode we probably won't go into a lot of detail in this episode So if you're wondering when we get to our news why we're not doing that It's because we already did it in 14 for 14 so do tune into that episode
0: yeah, the news that Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall were on the way out after this series dropped not long after we'd recorded our July episode, mm. and we thought, rather than waiting five weeks, and given we wanted to do this 14 for 14, let's deal with that bit of the news when it was still a bit hot, and and discuss our 14 uh, picks for, for for Doctor Who, some of them very realistic, some of them quite fantastic <laughs> um, um but yeah we did deal with but we did deal with that there as you said but there's still a bit to unpack in the new segment
1: there is indeed before we get to there though i do have a june podcast review that i somehow missed reading at the end of june i'm, I'm so sorry to katherine cheek who sent this to us i will read it out now Catherine's given it the title time traveler five stars she says dear robin dave About five years ago, Cameron Riley was introducing Ray Harris Jr. to the magic of Doctor Who and mentioned your podcast. Now, I should stop here and say Cameron Riley and Ray Harris Jr. do a a bunch of different podcasts, but this would have been on their Life of Caesar podcast, and uh, Cameron was telling Ray all about Doctor Who. And name checked us, and it was indeed about five years ago. Anyway, back to the back to the review from Catherine. I downloaded it and have had it in my list ever since. However, because I have many podcasts in my list, the rotation takes me about eighteen months to get through. I have just spent two weeks two hours a day in your company. Wow. Yeah. I travelled backwards in time to a land before COVID-19, where Dave could casually mention travelling the US, as though that is a thing. I travelled the podcast timeline through lockdowns and personal losses, through Big Finish and new adventures. I have arrived at the end just before the best of the 80s, the era where my brother and I videoed every daily episode so we could watch them all on Friday afternoon using a technique the kiddies now call binge watching. I met Davo in Maya, Brisbane, and he randomly signed a selected Doctor Who target novel. He was the incumbent at the time and wearing the costume. I'm sure the 80s adventures will be excellent. I guess I'll hear them in about 18 months. From Catherine Cheek, also known as Greenfern via Apple Podcasts.
0: Well, thank you very much. That's a really lovely little review there, Catherine. And I have a number of friends down here in Melbourne who do remember Peter Davison at uh Maya Melbourne on that particular tour. So uh yes, a big deal for a lot of fans at that time.
1: Oh, he was dragged around, it was hot, he was in the costume and they just dragged him from Maya to Maya across many states.
0: a uh, a friend of mine does tell the story of how he was first or second in the queue with about a thousand different things to sign and sort of dumped <laughs> them in front of Davo and Davo looked at him and gone, Are you serious? <laughs> And, and, and signed them and then sort of had a quiet word to the minder. And the minder turned to the stuck queue and said, just a reminder, Mr. Davison will be doing one item per person. Oh,
1: wow. How lucky.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Shall we move on to the news, Dave?
0: Uh, we should. So, look, we need to unpack the rest of the news regarding the upcoming series of Doctor Who. Mm. Now, we know that Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall are leaving. Um, there was a big sort of online convention announcement thing that uh, a lot of Twitter fans were getting very excited about because it was foreshadowed as being lots of news. And there was going to be a big surprise guest, and people were like, it's going to be David Tennant. It's going to be John Barrowman. Oh, my God. You know, it's going to be... Who knows? I, I um, thought
1: Joe- Joe Martin, for sure. I thought Joe Martin was a shoe in Yep, yeah,
0: that was another name that was bandied about, and people were like, it'll be great if it's this person, it'll be terrible if it's this person. And um, <laughs> I it, it happened about four a.m. in Australia, yeah. And so I, I I didn't stay up for it. But when I did wake up the next morning, I thought I'll look at Twitter, and, and I'll I'll just know by quickly scrolling there'll be lots of chatter about you know who this guest was. Was it Joe Martin? And everyone was delighted. Was it John Barryman? And everyone was mortified. And <laughs> I I couldn't find anything. And in the the end, I actually had to tweet out, hey, does anybody know who this special guest was? And um, we'll we'll get to that in a moment. But um, that that, that shows what a non-event in some ways it probably was. Yeah. Um, Not from anybody's fault, but just the build-up. didn't quite match the uh, expectations. So, Mm. look, this announcement did happen. The the opening of a statement that sort of came out to accompany it, she's back. The 13th Doctor is returning for the 13th series in what is said to be a six-part, highlight that, Mm. event serial, and then it goes on with lots of various things. And it makes the point that comedian John Bishop is joining the cast as Dan Lewis. It goes on to note that the big surprise guest was somebody by the name of Jacob Anderson, who was apparently in Game of Thrones and Broadchurch. Mm. And he will be a recurring characters semi-regular of some sort across this season followed by various different pr words for how awesome it's going to be (laughs) i have several points to make out of this rob i'm going to make them quickly then throw over to you okay Um, we need to talk about the size of the season because it's gone from sort of 13 to 10 to 8 and a special to 6
1: and yet they have the goal to say she's facing her biggest ever adventure
0: (laughs) That's right. Um, and they've also said that it's going to be sort of one long adventure. So we'll talk about both of them. The character of Vinda, or Vinda, or I don't know how you pronounce it, played by Jacob Anderson. First of all, can I just say out there to any PR person, particularly in Doctor Who land, I know Game of Thrones was kind of big with the people that were obsessed about it, but a lot of us didn't watch it. Mm. And indeed, I know there is overlap out there, but pretty much all the people I know who watch Game of Thrones are not the same people who I know that watch Doctor Who. They're almost two completely separate groups. And so this whole thing of, hey, we've got this guy from Game of Thrones, there's a lot of Doctor Who fans who went, huh? Who? Huh?
1: Yeah, and, and look, even for Game of Thrones fans like myself, Game of Thrones ended very badly. Its last two seasons were pretty, pretty grim. So so saying you've got someone from this show that ended so badly, it's not actually a good thing, BVC.
0: Yeah, it, it, look, I, I don't mind if they were in that, but it's not the big hook that you think it is, Mr. PR person. Not wanna, in the slightest. Just want to get that off my chest. Um, the more serious point about the Vinda is, Rob, we've spent a uh, couple of years now, or at least a couple of seasons, talking about there just being too many people in the TARDIS. Yeah. And then we said, oh, it's great. They're, they're, they're halving the number. We're going from four to two. A, a nice little Doctrine Companion oh and they're they're now adding another companion so they're back to three that could work and oh we've now got a semi-regular as well um so we're almost back to four um they're kind of my initial reactions rob your thoughts on all of that
1: yeah look very very similar to you dave and i've I've interrupted a few times i shouldn't have done that with with my gags about it being her biggest ever adventure no no
0: it's it's good monologues aren't aren't great that's fine
1: (laughs) You know, this this biggest ever adventure, th- this sounds like nonsense to me. But, you know, I've, I've said on Twitter recently, I will go into this series like I've gone into every series, and that's with optimism. And look, if it's a great six-part story, fabulous. If Chibnall suddenly learns to drop the exposition and do real writing, wonderful. You know, I will praise him to the rooftops if that happens. However, as we sit here today, it's all up for grabs. You, you can't deduce much from this uh, at all. <laughs>
0: No, and look, I'm very careful when it comes to criticizing the Whittaker Chimnailera because I have enjoyed most of it, and, and, and I repeat what we said a lot when it was the last series was broadcasting. This is all great. It's not amazing, and that that's you know great isn't terrible. I don't think the show is terrible. I just don't think it's as good as it has been or could be. Does six episodes potentially allow for a much tighter, more intense, more packed style of writing? Yeah, it it could. The, the thing about it's all going to be one long, big story. Now, does that literally mean that it's like Colony in Space? You know, it's going to be a story, part one, part two, part three. <sighs> I continuing. Don't think so. No, I, I don't think so. Is it more like, you know, the Mandalorian season one, which was very clearly a story, but there was the one on the moon, the one on the space station, the one in the desert? Or is it some sort of thing in between that, like season of the crown? which tells one long story. And although there are kind of distinct episodes, it, it's very hard to go, that's the one with that. We don't know.
1: Yeah, oh, look, the, the places they've been... Oh, will oh, might be spoilerific here, but the places they've been filming are very diverse. The enemies they've been filming against are very diverse. Steve, Stephen Moffat even gave away, which, one, which <laughs> one of the enemies was actually in a tweet, which I found quite funny, and he then had to sort of edit it. Uh, so, you know... I think they'll just go all over the place and have different enemies and stuff, but there'll be some sort of overarching theme, you know, like Key to Time was an overarching theme.
0: Key Key to Time style is probably my guess as well. There'll be a a MacGuffin or a a, a theme or a vibe that'll play through all six episodes, but they'll all be distinct locations and the TARDIS will travel between. I I certainly hope that's the case. I think having a time and space machine and being in one location for a season would, would be a mistake. But, look, it's still very up open in the air. We don't know if Vinder is a goodie or a baddie. We don't know if regular means two episodes or it means five episodes or even six. Mm. We're still not quite sure exactly how the specials are going to play out. We're still not sure if there's even going to be a 14th Doctor right now. We, we assume that there'll be a regeneration into the 14th Doctor at the end of Jodie's time, but there's lots of speculation it'll be Jodie mortally wounded, The fire Regeneration starts, cut to credits.
1: Yeah, well, well, I mean, that episode won't happen until probably October, November of 2022. That'll be the third of three specials next year. So, you know, there's a lot of water to come under the bridge between now and then. And even, you know, when a new series begins after that, could the BBC say, well, Jodie's going to finish, say, November of 2022. The next series of Doctor Who will come out around the same time the following year for the 60th. You know. Yeah,
0: yeah. look, it's, it's very possible. Um, I'm going to put it out there just now and say I think that as a fan group, we need to very quickly get used to the idea that the BBC and indeed the rest of the world actually doesn't care about the 60th anniversary as much as we do. And I suspect that it will not be a factor in the planning and the timing of the next season. If the next season or some specials coincide with the 60th i'm sure it will be acknowledged but i don't think they're going to be putting aside a pot of money just to go oh my god it's the 60th the fans all want a 60th we need a multi-doctor story in november i think it'll be a coincidence or it might not happen
1: well this is why people poo poo me saying the next series might start in november of 2023 because they say oh well they wouldn't start a new doctor at the anniversary but they might You know, I don't see why they wouldn't.
0: No, look, I honestly, I I don't mean to be uh, cynical and crass and all the rest of it, but I don't think the BBC schedule planners could give two figs about the Doctor Who 60th anniversary.
1: Mm. Shall we move on? Please, yes. All right. Something else we discussed on the 14 for 14 episode was JMS, or Joe Michael Straczynski, of Babylon 5 and Sense8 fame, wanting to be the showrunner of Doctor Who, literally putting his hand up and saying, I want to do this. And we spoke about it a lot at length there, and we've had some updates since then. One of them is uh, a fan sort of reached out on Twitter to ask JMS, you know, what's happening. And he said, and this is a quote Contact with the BBC has been made. They're going through their own process, which began before my tweet, and that has to run its course. But if those don't pan out and there's discussion to be had, they will reach out. And I thought, wow, there's some transparency there from JMS.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I saw the tweet where JMS actually went out there and he said, right, my agent is trying to call the BBC and it's this weird sort of bureaucratic British thing. We're not quite sure who you, who you call in the BBC. Does anyone have any ideas? And then there's a tweet a sort of a day later saying, I've got all the info I need. And then, yeah, yeah this, this comment came out saying, my agent has made contact. Now, I'm not quite sure whether to read that as a don't call us, we'll call you or a legitimate, you know, contact has been made. And, um, okay, we're very interested that your client is interested and we'll have further conversations. But, hey, he's having a genuine crack, and that's great.
1: Oh, yeah, look, uh, listen to our 14 for 14 episode for our thoughts on on JMS. But then Chris Chibnall got writing in Doctor Who magazine. He wrote a column, uh, as he sometimes does, and this column was all about leaving, as you'd imagine. It's the big topic of the moment. And he mentioned uh, a new showrunner and said the big change that happened during our tenure has been Doctor Who being produced through BBC Studios rather than the BBC's in-house drama department. It's a difference which won't really have affected the way you view the show, but it affects the process by which the program is made, managed and planned strategically. The appointment of a new showrunner is a commercially sensitive decision, way above the pay grade of an incumbent showrunner, so it'll be a joint decision between BBC Studios and the top decision makers at the BBC.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I was reflecting on this yesterday, and I genuinely have no idea who makes the call about who the next showrunner will be. And we're very used to, as classic fans or people who grew up with a classic season, the, reading all about how basically the head of serials or whatever that title would be, and it would vary over the years, basically was the boss of the producers of drama. And mm. therefore, they appointed the producer and all that sort of thing. And their their names that, you know, we can... We can quote and reference, you know, the people who employed Barry Letts and Philip Hinchcliffe and JNT and all the rest of it. We we know these people and we know their place in the BBC. the The BBC is a lot more complicated and opaque now, and I have no idea who picks the showrunner.
1: Yeah, look, <laughs> me either, Dave. But this, uh, this move to BBC Studios rather than the BBC's in-house drama department—that's got me thinking. Because you know, when we when we've spoken of JMS coming on, people have said, "Oh no, they they won't hire a Yank. It's a it's a BBC thing." You know, there's probably rules around it and all that sort of stuff. I'm thinking BBC Studios is this more open, globally facing, globally encompassing kind of thing. You know, it's it's not the old BBC in-house drama department. I I think they might entertain a foreigner coming in to showrun a, a show or direct something or whatever.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly the days of equity ruling the roost and vetoing anyone who didn't have an equity card in the UK are long gone. So mm. who knows?
1: Yeah, who knows? Shall we move on?
0: A quick piece of news from me. Uh, we don't often talk about Big Finish, but something that grabbed my attention is that Freema Adjaman is back to do a little... Big Finish series about her time wandering the Earth during uh, the Master's Rule while the Doctor was doing whatever it was, he was up in the, the space station, you know, old and withered and all the rest of it, which is an interesting idea. But what caught my eye is that the statement that says Freema is joined by Marina Sirtis, who yes. played Deanna Troy in Star Trek The Next Generation, and he's making her Big Finish debut. And that's just a nice little piece of uh, cross sci-fi pollination that grabbed my attention.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, th- I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> uh, finally, rounding out the news, I caught a tweet from a uh, a, a Twitter uh, handle that I don't normally follow. It's the BBC Research and Development Twitter handle, which is BBC RD on Twitter. And they popped out this interesting little uh, piece, and I'll, and I'll read what it, the, the text was. It said, we're researching how video can be automatically colorized using recent breakthroughs in machine learning. Our work has expanded to research how to guide the colorization process by using other color images with similar content as the black and white ones. And I thought, you know where this is going. They're going to colorize Hartnell and Troughton.
0: It's it's possible and it's intriguing and um, I don't know what I think about that.
1: What about when you see on Twitter? I mean, amateurs at home do a bang up job of colorizing, like, you know, little 20, 20 second clips of Hartnell and stuff. And they look bloody good sometimes, Dave. I think I'd watch it.
0: They do look great. Uh, and they're definitely fun to watch on Twitter and go, oh, that's really interesting. Would I fork out money to watch an unearthly child in color for 90 minutes? Gee, I need to think about that one. And it's all speculative at the moment, so I'm not going to think too hard. But uh, as a bit of a purist in some ways, I, and as somebody who we, we've commented before, watches all the animations in black and white, even though there's a colour option, I, uh, mm. I'm interested, but would I pay money for it?
1: What if, mm? what? If, okay, what if the Hartnell Blu-rays come out and BBC's so intoxicated with colourising stuff, they put them out as colour Blu-rays? and there's no black and white option.
0: I I, I would be upset. Um, I I wouldn't go sort of, you know, crazy fan and try and bring down Twitter over it, but I (laughs) I, I certainly would be upset by that decision because I'd want the the, the black and whites. Mm -hmm. Um, If they had a colour option, I would buy them. I would probably watch them in black and white, but pick a few episodes to watch them in colour as a bit of an experience. But if it was specific, like a colour DVD... mm, I don't know. I'm I'm curious, and how much is curious worth? I'm not sure.
1: Mm, yeah, because I'm just I'm just thinking. You know, black and white and Blu-ray. It, it's not really a match made in heaven. Could could the, the move to Blu-ray for Hartnell and Trouton be a step up to color? I I don't know. I'm I'm just speculating. But this did come from a BBC, you know, research and development handle. They they are looking into machine learning for colorization.
0: Yeah, and different stories would interest me differently as well. I think something like the Keys of Marinus, for example, would be quite interesting to see in colour. An Earthly Child, probably not so much. I I don't mm. particularly need to see a studio forest and some cavemen in rather nice furs. You know, I, I don't think we're going to get much out of that in, in colour, whereas you know, of all the sets and the crazy design in Keys of Marinus, I might. I, I don't know. We'll see what happens.
1: All righty. Shall we move on to short topics?
0: Yeah, look, a couple of easy ones for me this month. I did highlight last time that I was going to be watching the season 24 Blu-ray which had arrived and I have uh look I I did enjoy watching it and I have enjoyed the reaction from other fans I mean it is great that these stories can now be appreciated for what they are Uh, I still think it's quite a weak season but I can see the intent in them a lot of other fans absolutely love the tone and the style and uh, I must admit I watched Time on the Rani for the first time in a very long time. Um, <laughs> yes. It's not good. Um, no, no, it's not. Um, and it just shows just how rushed that production was because the direction is is really just, oh my God, get this in the camera. There's, there's a lot of people standing around waiting for their cues or things not quite happening fast enough. Um, there's a great bit in episode four where the Rani literally has to pause... Turn away from the Doctor and Mel, pause again and wait to be sort of captured and thrown in the thing. <laughs> I, I think Kenomara is having a lot of fun, but I don't think it's actually that great a performance. I know that, that is that is heresy for mm. to some fans, but I don't think it is. Look, I'm glad they got Time of the Rani in the can and the tetraps are cool and some of the effects are cool, but it's it's not great. Paradise Towers, I enjoyed watching. I've long enjoyed that script. Uh, it's a really great cast. It's also got some very ropey moments, yeah. um, which is a shame. Delta and the Bannerman is fun, but it's ridiculous. Fire, look, that's always been my favourite of that season. I know that's not a majority view. I know I'm a bit out of step with some people on that, but I think it's a great story. Uh, so, look, not a great season, but some fun in there. The one observation I did make, though, particularly, is one of the big selling points of this Blu-ray set, you can watch them with all the cutscenes reinserted into the story. Yeah, which, which is somebody who's seen these things many times before. I, I, I noticed, and the big takeaway I had from that was it was the right decision to cut all these scenes because <laughs> <laughs> they're not great. They do they do drag some stuff out, and um, there's some very weird ones in there. So uh, interesting to see them, and, and 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 I'm glad that I had that option. But uh, better out than in. And look, it's kind of the same with the studio footage. You know, I'd watch 20 minutes of studio footage in which they've recorded about. 30 seconds of television and i'm going look this is fascinating yeah but i don't need to watch six hours of this no no that's exactly (laughs) but but i'm I'm glad i have it because no doubt one day i will watch the six hours of it
1: fabulous (laughs) uh well i've been listening to something uh of late dave i've listened to the second eccleston box set from big finish uh listeners may remember the first one i was very um On the fence about it, I didn't particularly like it in some ways, but I had speculated that this next box set, which had three hour-ish long stories, all separate stories, might be more to my taste than one sort of epic, timey-wimey thing which they kicked off uh, with, and I was right. It absolutely delivered what I thought it would deliver. First up, a story called Girl Deconstructed, where Eccleston's up in Scotland. A girl's missing, but they can hear her voice and her presence in this house. Where is she gone? Hmm. It feels very much like if there was a 2004 series of Doctor Who, this could come straight from it. It's that good, and it feels like the TV show. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I really enjoyed the first story called Girl Deconstructed. Uh, the second one, Fright Motif, is interesting because it's in post-World War II Paris, and involves some musicians and things, and it's kind of cool. It's slightly not as convincing as the first one in terms of, could this be a TV episode? Uh, Sort of, yeah, it's not too bad. So that one wasn't quite as good as the first story, Fright Motif. And then finally, the third one, Planet of the End is a story which was interesting to listen to but I think could only ever exist on audio like without without spoiling anything there's there's part where the doctor is rooted into the earth well it's not the earth it's an alien planet but you know what I mean he's rooted into the ground and uh he stays that way for about 70 years and like he grows a big long beard and long hair Rip Van Winkle style and this uh AI comes and and trims his hair and beard from time to time and just weird stuff like that happens and i'm like i can't picture this happening at all on tv maybe it could happen in a comic strip perhaps so it was actually a a game of sort of diminishing returns girl deconstructed was great fright motif was pretty good and planet of the end was like "Mm, i'm not so sure on this but it was quite okay compared to what was in the first box set so if you're on the fence about getting any of the new eccleston stuff get the second box set is my advice It's, it's much more interesting
0: that's nice. You follow Big Finish more than I do. Do mm. do they, at some point down the line, sell the stories in box sets individually, or do they tend to be you buy it as a box set forever and ever?
1: Everything I've ever bought from a box set, I've just bought as a box set, even as a download. Yep. I'll take, uh, take that question under advisement and <laughs> get back to you.
0: <laughs> no, fair enough. I'll be curious to hear, because that's the sort of thing where I think, oh... If they sold me the first story separately, I might I might you know buy that and just have a listen just out of curiosity. But I, I don't know. I'll dive into a full box set.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh,
0: quickly from me, I I know we have a number of listeners who are of a similar vintage to me, or have since discovered the Virgin New Adventures. And so I did recently dive into rereading one. I reread First Frontier, which has always been in my top ten, not my top five, but in my top ten. And rereading this was very worth it. Uh, look, spoilers for the next 60 seconds for a book that's 20-something years old. If, if that's a problem for you, skip forward a minute. It's set in 1950s America. It's very much all about the little green men and flying saucers and all that stuff that was happening around the time, you know, with the Roswell crash and the mm. Kentucky goblins and all that sort of thing. Uh, the Master is in it. It is the Master, as we saw him at the end of Survival, being slowly mutated by the cheetah virus. And so he does a deal with a tazan, a great one, you know, new adventure, alien creation. He says, uh, if you use your genetic skills to cure me of this virus, I will help you take over the Earth. And they do a big deal, and it obviously ends up terribly for everybody, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, it's it's a fun adventure. It's great to have the Master. It's great to have aliens and, and, and that setting. But David A. McGinty, particularly, in my view, really captures the voice of the Seventh Doctor and Ace and Benny really well. And that just made it a good, fun read for me, I wanted to mention.
1: Yeah, he's a fabulous author. He is.
0: He really is. Yeah. I'm going to
1: round out by mentioning Titan Comics is doing yet another uh, multi-Doctor story. This one has brought back Rose Tyler, uh, and she's with the Eighth Doctor and the Eleventh Doctors. And my real comment here is not so much the news of that happening, but I, I really can't take the Titan Comics seriously at all. Uh, anymore. When they first started, they started with a tenant series, and they gave him this cool Latino companion. I think she was Latino anyway, and that was that was great. But then they started slipping into doing multi doctor stories. And I swear, every time I turn around or get an email from the people at Titan Comics, they're doing a multi doctor story. They've obviously hit upon this section of fandom who would enjoy a multi-doctor story every every week on television. Yep. And 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 not see in a million years how that was weird or how it was overkill, uh, you know, like whoosh right over their heads. They just think it was fabulous. But for me, yeah, I, it's actually why I stopped buying the Titan comics years ago. I thought you guys are just milking this and you're milking a very specific kind of fan and it's just cheap and I really didn't like it. And this also tied into something that also happened during the past month, talking of multi-doctor stories and, you know, Titan pushing the button again and again and again, just cheapening the concept. Uh, Peter Capaldi was out doing some uh, press for Suicide Squad. He was on a show called Sunday with Stephen Rainey, and they asked him if he'd do a multi-doctor story, and he said, and this is a quote, I wouldn't really fancy that. There are so many doctors now. I'm quite happy with what I did, you know. I loved my time on Doctor Who, but I think the more multi-doctor stories you have, the less effective they are, really.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with the man.
1: Yeah, he's, he's actually been making some interesting comments out on the, the press rounds for Suicide Squad. Someone asked him about audio adventures, and he took that on as radio plays, and he, he just said how much he hated doing radio plays as a younger actor, and they're really depressing, and you would go into the basement at the BBC, and it was just awful. And <laughs> I thought, oh, gee, big finish. <laughs> I'm not sure Capaldi's going to be knocking on your door anytime soon
0: no look uh capaldi is clearly in work at the moment and yeah yeah you don't you, you don't do big finish when you can do multi-million dollar films um no you, you do big finish when the multi-million dollar films stop or there's a nice gap or covid means you're in the basement so you might as well
1: yeah and even though fans hate hate people saying it eccleston came out and said it he said i'm doing big finish because i got to make money
0: yeah this is their career this is their job yeah. um Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I think that's pretty non-controversial myself.
1: Yeah, so do I. But people get really uptight when you mention it. But anyway. Anyway. Yes. (laughs) Main topic time. Yes, our era in Doctor Who
0: magazine comics, Dave. There's so much to say here. There is so much to say. So I might just kick us off with a couple of opening thoughts about what we're doing and why. Yeah, please. And one thing that I've found is that there are people in Doctor Who fandom who are considerably more invested in the Doctor Who comics than I think either of us and that, that's fantastic. It's something that they look and research and the Stripped for Action docos on the DVD range were really interesting for people like us to sort of dive into and, and I'm not remotely one of those sort of people. Like I, I know some of the names of artists and I know a bit about the different eras of comics but I've really only read my era and I don't really read, read comics outside of Doctor Who. In fact I don't read comics outside of Doctor Who full stop so Mm. That that's the reason why I wanted to talk about our era, but also a lot of people who do talk about Doctor Who comics talk about this sort of big golden age, and they talk about the Toms, the Davos, and those early Collins, and, and it's all this wonderful sort of stuff. And then they're like, and then there was some other stuff that wasn't very good. And we don't want to talk about that, or yeah. or they grow out of them, or they they moved on, and so a lot of stuff that was really when we were reading DWM yourself a couple of years earlier than me, I think, that era doesn't really get talked about as much. There are some great podcasts out there talking about the entirety of Doctor Who magazine comics. I'll give a shout-out to our friends at Diddly Dumb, who on issues 136 and 137 in the middle of last year had Mark Cochram another friend of the podcast, and they Mm -hmm. did a really good two-parter on the history of Doctor Who comics. But again, didn't really cover what we're going to cover. So this is just a way of us saying... We're not comic book experts. We're not Doctor Who comic experts. But we love the little bit of the thing that we grew up with, and we just want to talk about that and why we love it and what it was. Maybe you'll be sharing that nostalgia with us. Maybe it will inspire you to go and look at a few of these yourself, or maybe Mm. it'll just be background listening. But that's kind of where I'm coming from.
1: Yeah, and and I hope it does all those things, uh, frankly. Uh, I I tweeted uh, yesterday or the day before, I can't recall, this may sound like a dry topic or even an odd topic, but I think there's some interesting stuff in here. And I think if people are, are listening, they might sort of tease out, Oh, that sounds like an interesting story. I'll look that up. Or that sounds like an interesting artist. I'll look up his work, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. And I, I think it's a, it's a different sort of episode for us, Dave. And probably even in the way we sort of, you know, we'll have me talking for, a you know, a, a, a block here. And then you'll be talking for a block because my era is different to your era. Yeah. But, I think I think there's some good stuff in here, yeah. So why don't we rip in?
0: The show is all yours, Rob, because your era comes first.
1: Excellent. I think of my era in the Doctor Who magazine strip as Colin Comics, if you want to put that in quotation marks, drawn by the absolutely legendary John Ridgway. Full stop.
0: Now, now that is a name that I have heard. Yeah,
1: yeah. he he did the basically all of the Colin Comics. Uh, from start to finish, and they started in April of uh, 84. Uh, this is long before I got into buying Doctor Who magazine, as we'll talk about in a moment. And he actually continued on and did the first Sylvester strip. So John Ridgway actually encompasses this incredible space of time. And when you see John Ridgway talk about his work, because I always thought his art just looks sensational, he talks about himself as, as really wanting or seeing himself as a uh, as an illustrator, more so than a comic artist. And I can see that in his work. The attention to detail is extreme, and it's just so beautiful to look at. I love his stuff. What I, I wanted to say, though, you know, I think of this era as being Colin Comics drawn by John Ridgway and all that stuff. But what's interesting is if I take the first Doctor Who magazine I bought, which is issue 119, it's only 15 more issues beyond that, a bit over a year, basically, of Ridgway, and, you know, four of those 15 are him doing a Sylvester story. So what I think of as my era, Colin drawn by John Ridgway, is actually this tiny little block.
0: Yeah, it's something I'm going to come to as well, that when you're buying DWM once every four weeks as a younger person, what felt like an era, actually look back and go, oh, that was 12 issues, that was nothing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So I guess what's happened now that I take this chance to look back is that I've had a year, you know, give or take, of seeing Ridgway drawing Colin, and it imprinted on me so hard that that is the style of Doctor Who magazine comic for me. And, of course, with some of the... um, earlier stories in his run being so legendary you hear people you know talk about voyager you know yeah. they name check that a lot because yeah. a because it's good and b because it had a lot of standalone reprints and c because it actually it's it's three stories that take up you know nine issues or something like that you know so it's had much wider exposure and and that just reinforces my point of view about ridgeway and colin and all of that sort of stuff and indeed During the past week, a friend of the show, Rob, from 42 to Doomsday, tweeted in response to me posting some artwork from Voyager. He said, and I I actually noted the quote down, I'm either showing my age or my stubborn streak, but this era has never been bettered. And I'm like, yeah, right on, Rob.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of people that would say that.
1: Exactly. So, you know, look, I'm going to talk about some specific stories in a moment. But from my perspective, it's, it's a fabulous era and we'll talk about it. Yes, there's some real irony, of course, and I'm I'm not not immune to missing that. Colin hadn't gone down well on TV. You know, Twin Dilemma was a train wreck. His first season is patchy. There are some good good stories, but there's also some real dross, too.
0: And, and, And you can debate how well it went down with the general public. There was a segment of fandom it went down very badly with.
1: Yeah, massively so. But here in the comics, here he was an interesting, likeable Doctor basically from the start. You know, it's almost Big Finish, like decades before Big Finish was a thing. It's people digging the Colin Baker Doctor who didn't rate him on television at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I'd look at his TV episodes and think, ooh, that's a bit cringe. I don't like that. Hate the costume, blah, blah, blah. But in black and white comic strips where his personality came across a lot differently, I thought he was just fantastic.
0: (laughs) Yeah, look, you're right. It was... It was a very different era to the TV. Like, from the little I've seen of it, it's very different to the TV show.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I'll get into the stories. Uh, I won't go through every story, dear listener, uh, just the big ones. And I, I noted that Colin started in April of 84 in Dwim and had some, you know, some cool adventures like The Shapeshifter, which is where they get Frobisher in. And Frobisher isn't even a penguin at first when he comes into the story. Uh, and then Voyager, which as I mentioned, is about, you know, nine months worth of, you know, stories over three different stories. <laughs> um, there's a very cool three-part Cyberman thing that I love too. But we need to fast forward to December of 86 to get to that issue of Doctor Who Magazine 119 that I bought first. Mm-hmm. And in that, it's the second part of a story called Changes. And I began with this second part, but it's such a simple story, it wasn't impenetrable by any stretch. And what fascinated me was the art. You know, I've mentioned Bridgway's style, but also what he was drawing fascinated me with Changes because the Doctor and Frobisher are walking around the TARDIS, Looking for Perry, and there's also an intruder on the ship. You know, it's a it's a very basic story, and they walk through rooms that look like asteroid fields, mm. and they and they walk through the TARDIS zoo, which isn't really a zoo. The Doctor hasn't locked up animals, but he describes it as you know he, when he's going around the universe, he saves animals and wants to take them to other locations, and they're in all these smallish boxes. But we're shown very very cleverly, they have TARDIS like interiors, you know, like infinite you know, savannah for these wildcats to run around or whatever, you know, inside these tiny little boxes. So these animals are being looked after very well in this TARDIS zoo, and that fired my imagination. And they walk past a room, and you can see Bessie is parked in the room, and they walk down this long, dark tunnel, almost like, a you know, at a railway station or something, and you can see old costumes sitting on Taylor's dummies. You can see Davo's costume. You can see Tom's, I think it's his season 18 costume or something like that. And I can't tell you how this made me feel. I was I was new to fandom and I became so excited by this and my imagination was firing and they even end up in the wooden secondary control room of, <laughs> of the TARDIS. <laughs> it's like fan overload stuff. Yeah. It's probably even fan wank, you know, <laughs> and the story is barely there, but the visuals, both the Ridgeway style of drawing and what he was drawing just pulled me in. I couldn't have started on a better, you know, strip here. I thought, oh, this is wonderful.
0: It sounds lovely.
1: Yeah. Moving on uh, into pretty much the middle of 87, there's a story called The Gift, which is very good. Uh, the Sixth Doctor, Perry and Frobisher are having some downtime. So yes, Perry has joined the script now and, course they're having this downtime it's a good excuse to draw nicola in a bikini i guess any (laughs) excuse um (laughs) and they do something the tv series should do i think or could do and that's colin has all these invites to parties across time and space and you know they're like we're bored what shall we do and he just pulls like he's fanning out a deck of cards he's like well what, what party do you want to go to and i thought that's really cool because you could actually do that you know yeah uh you know, so great. And they go to this weird planet, and it's it's like something from the gangster days in the US, like the, the th- 20s or the 30s or something like that. And before they go to the, the party itself, they, they run into the guy who's having the party. His brother's a mad scientist, and he gives them a package to deliver. They deliver it to the guy at his party. That's why this strip is called The Gift. And it's this weird little self-replicating robot that jumps out of the box and runs away and starts ripping up the city and taking raw materials and building more little replicating robots. And suddenly the whole city gets pulled apart by these self replicating robots. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is amazing. And it also does some really nice timey wimey stuff where Colin I shouldn't call him Colin, I should call him the Sixth Doctor, shouldn't I? <laughs> the Sixth Doctor has to go and and sort of unravel how these robots came to be and stuff. So he goes back in time and he, he's in like a NASA space suit and he's on a, on a moon and he learns how this robot was from a crashed, you know, saucer or something and and then this mad scientist got a hold of it etc cetera, etc cetera. and i always thought that was a really cool imaginative kind of thing really doing something that the the show wasn't doing but which i thought was just a really fabulous exciting story yeah moving on to one that a lot of people will know and here we're, we're towards the end of 87 this is actually the end of Colin's run or the six doctors run it's the world shapers does that ring any it bells? It does ring
0: a lot of bells. I think it's one that a lot of people talk about.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this strip, spoilers, uh, features the death of Jamie McCrimmon. Oh, wow. Which, yeah, to this day has never been contradicted in anything, you know, not in novels or audio or anything. So do we take this to be canon? I guess we do. And look. <laughs> If it's already starting to sound fan-wanky that they've brought Jamie back again with the Sixth Doctor and they kill him. Uh, hold on to your hats, because this is also a Mondasian Cyberman origin story, uh, essentially, which shows that the Cybermen evolved from the Vord. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and these origins, of course, conflict with all the other origin stories we've been given for the Cybermen. I get all of that. However... This is really important if you were watching during the Capaldi era. Yep. Because the World Shapers was specifically referenced in the Doctor Falls as one of the origins of the Cybermen uh, when the Doctor mentions Planet 14. Though the TV episode also established Planet 14, Marinus and Mondas as separate planets, contradicting the World Shapers because here in the World Shapers we're shown Marinus which these guys who shape worlds refer to as planet 14 because it's the 14th planet. They're about to world shape. And then through their world shaping technique, which speeds up time, it evolves into Mondas. So for anyone still following me with what I'm saying, it's very weird, bit fan wanky, but you know what? It's a really cool story too. There's even this, when they get first get to Marinus, there's a dying time Lord there and he's out of regenerations. And, uh, when he dies he just melts away his body melts away and apparently that's what happens when a Time Lord runs out of regenerations and again as a fan a new fan even I'm seeing this stuff oh my god that's what happens when a Time Lord runs out of lives oh Jesus this is great and they go into his TARDIS and it's an, an amazing modern TARDIS and it's just so cool to look at so yeah, look, there's Fan Wank by the truckload and there's Vord turning into Cybermen. That's just nuts. Uh, going back in time and getting an, an old Jamie McCrimmon and then killing him off in the final episode. I get the wank, but I love it.
0: I was thinking all the way through your description of that, that if you told me that that was the proposed plot for an upcoming episode of Doctor Who, <laughs> I would think that was absolutely terrible. But as a comic strip, yeah. yes, Absolutely.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then we're getting towards the end of my era in Doctor Who Comics, only another year's worth here. Um, The wheels really start to fall off for me with Sylve's era because it starts with some really clunky and confusing stories. I mean, John Ridgway leaves the art almost straight away. He does the first story called A Cold Day in Hell. Not that his Sylvester, mind you, was brilliant by any means. In the very early strips, you can almost detect every publicity shot Sylve had ever done was the template for the doctor and all of the panels. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, I've seen that angle of Sylvester McCoy before in a you know publicity shot. Oh, I've seen him do that expression in a publicity shot, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So he debuts in a in an Ice Warrior story that's a bit of a non-event, you know. Um it's it's cool to see the Ice Warriors, but the story is a bit basic. Then he does a one shot called Redemption where they take a character from that first story and she turns out to be a baddie. And they get pursued, and the TARDIS, the guy comes, who's been pursuing her, comes and takes her away. And the Doctor's like, yeah, okay, cool, she was, she was a baddie, so you can take her, that's fine. Uh, very weird sort of one-shot. Then we get to a story, and I'm going to talk about this one in some detail, called The Crossroads of Time. And this confused me for the longest time. Because you have Sylve in the TARDIS, and again, I should be saying the Seventh Doctor. And the TARDIS collides with a bloke called Death's Head, out in the Vortex, And so Death's Head and the TARDIS both crash land to this planet. Death's Head is in his own ship. And also landing on the planet is a strange-looking guy called a Time Warden who's there to sort of adjudicate the collision, like he's sort of a traffic cop for the Vortex. (laughs) Uh, And and 13-year-old me wasn't having this at all. Like, what, a a higher power than the Time Lords, like these Time Wardens out in the Vortex, you know, directing traffic. Like, Like, you know bollocks this is ridiculous anyway death's Head's quite a nasty guy and the, the time warden takes off because death's head is so scary and and leaves the doctor to sort of run around with death's head running after him and you know mad and shoes then the doctor pulls out the master's tissue compression eliminator <laughs> sure <laughs> and because death's head i didn't mention he's about 30 or 40 feet tall uh that's why he's scary and the doctor zaps him And it doesn't kill him like the TCE kills everybody else. It just shrinks him down to normal size. (laughs) And now that he's normal size and sort of manageable, he can come into the TARDIS and then the Doctor tricks him and opens up a time vortex or something in the TARDIS and sucks him away to a different dimension or whatever it is. And I thought, this story is just bloody silly. But do you know what was happening in the background? And I only learned this years later, Dave.
0: I have a vague idea, but you'll know better.
1: <laughs> Basically, Marvel UK had invented Death's Head to be a character in the Transformers, in the, in the UK comic strip of Transformers. That's why he was 30, 40 feet tall. Then they thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Death's Head had his own comic book, which he did actually get. But in his comic book, it's going to be ridiculous if he's 30 or 40 feet tall dealing with everyone else who's tiny. Let's transition him through (laughs) Doctor Who magazine so the Doctor can zap him (laughs) with the TCE, make him normal size, then he gets zapped off into a different, you know, I think it's like the 81st century or whatever it is. And then we can tell the stories in his own comic series and he'll be a normal size. How bloody convoluted is that?
0: so i didn't know all of that i i was aware i was aware that there was basically marvel saying hey doctor who magazine you're one of our titles you're not out there on your own we're doing a crossover with you hey watch our crossover and sort of smashing these things together i didn't know that it was specifically for the purpose of shrinking death's head to get him into his own comic that's new to me
1: yeah yeah, no, that, that's what it was all about And I think there's about 12 issues of the, the Death's Head comic out there But this was a weird time for for Doctor Who in comics, Dave There was a, uh, a comic called, uh, I think it was called Incredible Hulk Presents Which was an Incredible Hulk comic But in the comic there would be other strips And believe it or not, in every episode In every episode, in every edition of Incredible Hulk Presents There was a Doctor Who strip But aimed at younger readers. So not only in this era were they doing like John Ridgway and a guest writer doing the Doctor Who strip, elsewhere Marvel was doing a totally separate strip for the Incredible Hulk comic. And I'm thinking, how much was this all costing? Because the Doctor Who comic was costing half of Dwim's budget. Yeah. You know, but Marvel was also doing this other comic and I think they wanted to see some economies of scale and were nudging the editor like, why don't you just take on these comics then you don't have to do, you know, lose half your budget on your comic and thankfully he said no because i think these were very very childlike kid friendly type comics
0: junior doctor who stuff
1: very junior doctor who and uh, apparently one or two made it
0: Uh, yeah i I have seen a couple of examples of this i can't remember where but yeah they are very it's not doctor who it's the seventh doctor but it's not doctor who
1: yeah exactly anyway we're going to move into my final three stories here i'm going to give a mention to all of these uh first of all Claws of the Clarthy comes not long after. This is runs from April to June of 1988. And after I thought a bunch of Sylve strips were really bad, I actually had a bit of time for this one because it's Sylve in mid-19th century London and some aliens have crashed their spaceship and are afoot and one's ended up in a sort of a, a circus freak show. And his robot, meanwhile, is getting around causing havoc, you know, after dark. And the other two aliens that crashed in the ship with him are the real baddies of the piece. And I won't go into any more detail. But there's some really cool stuff, like the Great Exhibition. I think anything set in the sort of mid-19th century has the Great Exhibition in it. There's lots of atmospheric London scenery in there. It's a decent little story. And with a few changes, it probably could have even done okay on TV. It's that solid. So, you know, after a few Dud sylve stories, there's a tick for claws of uh, the Clarthy. Okay. Then, (laughs) second last one... Culture shock. This is a one-off in issue 139 of DWIM. It's July of 88. I really lost the plot with this one as a kid. Basically, it's told from the point of view of a cell culture. You know, so if you think back to your (laughs) your science days at school and cell cultures and things, uh, think of a cell culture and think of it being a mass mind and then think of it taking on the body of this weird little dinosaur that's sort of dog-sized. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds weird already, right? Um, Sylv lands in the TARDIS and he's all mopey about something and he's thinking of just giving up and going home and then he comes across this little dog-sized dinosaur thing and it's it's on its last legs and, you know, Sylv works out what it needs. The, the thing keels over and apparently dies and he takes its corpse and puts it in a body of water and all the cells inside it, this cell culture, this mass mind, go out into the water and continue to live in the body of water it's really weird and trippy and some people probably find great meaning or beauty in this but at 13 years of age it was over my head and even now that I've reread it recently it's style over substance it's just bizarre and at this juncture I was really starting to lose interest in the strip there would only been like as I say one good story in the past year But I will mention a story that comes after it for one particular reason. It's called Planet of the Dead. It's from September to October of 88. And that was cool because it had shapeshifters in it. And I, I spoke earlier of being, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm loving all this fan-wank stuff. And, you know, you go walking yep. through the TARDIS and show me old costumes and bring back Jamie and turn Vord into Cybermen. This is all fantastic. And in Planet of the Dead, these shapeshifters at different times shapeshift into old companions and they shapeshift into other doctors. So you get to see Tom and Peter and all the other doctors and, you know, the, the, the real fan wank in, in, inside me really, yeah. you know, was, was was taken by that. Um, but at this point in time, around issue 142 of Doctor Who magazine, I was really giving up on the strip. After what had been such a great start with the John Ridgway Collins stuff, which I then went back and read all the early stuff, of course, but that was at a later time. My My actual first flush of comic strip fandom was done. Nice. There you go.
0: <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, look, I'll I'll launch into mine, and then I think we'll do sort of a few comments to finish, sort of comparing notes. Yeah. Um. So, look, the era that I'm going to talk about comes a couple of years later. It it starts really in '92. Now, a lot of people who are big fans of Doctor Who comics more generally will tell you there's two big things wrong with this era, and I think they're two of the strengths of this era. Oh. Uh, now, now, one thing they say is that a lot of the good eras of Doctor Who comics, like, for example, those early to middle Collins, have got one static writer, one static artist, and they build a sort of a whole continuing world that, that's, that's really, really good. Uh, that doesn't happen in these era of the later McCoy comics, the later Seventh Doctor comics. But on the other hand, you get writers like Andrew Cartmel, Mark Platt. Paul Cornell, mm. uh, a little round, de- little, little way down the track, Gareth Roberts, Kate Orman. So you're getting very recognisable writers uh, who actually were involved in the production or would go on to be involved in later production. So I, I think there's a strength in that variety and the names that they were able to get in at this point. And the other thing that some people will say is that Doctor Who comic had always been a very standalone thing in its own world with its own continuity. Yes. Um, going right back... The first Doctor travelled with John and Jillian, and the second Doctor had a whole adventure with Scarecrows where he was re- regenerated, and the third Doctor had these whole little continuity with his little house down at the beach, and or, 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 and his car was called a different name. It was Betsy instead of Bessie or something.
1: Oh, and I've got a good one too. Sylvester, because of the crossover with Colin, in his first story, he talks to Frobisher about just getting rid of Perry and Perry leaving, and so it's like Mel never happened. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, so they just have their own continuity. Whereas we're now getting into, as I say, from '92, the, the wilderness years are very much on top of us now. We've sort of gone through '90, and it's like, oh, there's another season of Doctor Who coming shortly, and '91, yeah, maybe it's coming, maybe not. And by '92, it's like, okay, season 27 is not coming. No. Doc, Doctor Who is not on our TV screens. And there's lots of rumors and there's lots of stories, but it's not on our TV screen. So Doctor Who finally was able to kind of become what it wants to become, almost unconstrained by the TV series. And the new adventures are happening, the missing adventures start to happen, and they and the Doctor Who comics say, well, let's let's actually get together and create this universe where we're all sort of working off each other so mm-hmm. that fans have got this thing that, that they can live in. And as a 12, 13, 14-year-old across the course of this era, that to me was wonderful. I, I felt like I was part of a proper era of Doctor Who, and you'd read the magazine, and there'll be some reference to something, and then you read the the next new adventure; it'll be calling back to that and setting each other up. And I just thought this—it was so wonderful to be a part of. Yeah. Even if it was in, to some people a betrayal of the the nature of the comic. So, so that's sort of framing the era that I'm going to talk about now. The first issue of DWM that I bought properly, one eight four, actually didn't have a, a, a new comic in it. There's been some uh, controversies around a uh, comic called Evening's Empire that that sort of disappeared um, after, um, I think, one episode. And they reprinted a couple of old comics from the 70s. The first one was called Business as Usual. And this was an outstandingly good comic. It's basically about a guy who's hired by a plastics factory to discover why this new plastics factory down the road is suddenly doing so amazingly awesomely out of nowhere. And of course, finds out that it's being run by the Nestines, and they're making Autons, <laughs> and they're making little, like, 80s-style plastic toy soldiers that are actually Autons. And nice. uh, it's it's really, really cool. And that kind of got me into the idea of, hey, you can have these really awesome adventures in the comics. Uh, there was another one, The Fires, down below, which was Unit versus the Dominators, a very simple plot by John Peel. Uh, then we get into the first Seventh Doctor comics that I saw. The Grief was a three-parter, uh, where the Doctor and Ace fight the fight the Lom. Uh, it's not the best comic, but it was a nice little adventure and definitely played on that whole vibe coming out of season 26 of the seventh Doctor as a manipulator, willing to sacrifice people. Ace doesn't quite trust him or, or share his values. And that, that's all there. We then go into a very weird comic in Doctor Who magazine 188 from July of 92, a three-parter called Ravens, written by former script editor Andrew Cartmel, mm. in which a bunch of hooligans or bikies or something are uh, threatening a, a, a defenseless woman and her young daughter.
1: Oh, I've heard of this one. You've heard of
0: this one? Yeah. Yeah, and so the Doctor goes back in time, finds this, like, ancient samurai warrior called the Raven whose own wife and daughter was killed by his enemies, kind of picks him up in the TARDIS, drops him off at this fight, and has him brutally slaughter the bikies (laughs) to save the young woman. And it's... It's just the most weird, bizarre thing. And, and Cartmel's sort of love of the graphic novel and, and the sort of comics he read is, is very there because it's all very, not dialogue intense, it's all very sort of brooding little narrator's comic comments and then, you know, great big panels of sort of black ink blood spewing <laughs> everywhere. And it, it, I was 12 when I read this. I was like, what the hell is this?
1: It's like Quentin Tarantino has come to Doctor Who.
0: Yeah, um, I, I loathed it as, as, as a boy. Um, I, I look at it now and I go, "Okay, I, I see what Cartmel is doing." And, and Cartmel has said he's quite proud that, like, I did this, you know, cartoon that everybody's like, "Oh, wow, that's very edgy. That's very different." And you know, you can see Cartmel enjoying that. But uh, these first few, issues sort of showed me the differences <laughs> that the that, that Doctor Who could do. But the era really starts for me uh, with a one-off cartoon by the name of Cat Litter yeah. in October of '92. This is written by Mark Platt. And it is illustrated by John Ridgway, who has come back to do a a one-off here. Nice. And what we have in this is Ace is pottering around in the TARDIS, and suddenly it starts to um, rearrange itself around her. And it's all plotted out sort of like a board game or a chess game, and you move through the different panels, almost snakes and ladders-ish about it, uh, as the TARDIS retransfigures itself around Ace and eventually sort of erases her room and eventually she gets up to the console room and the doctor's there and she says what's going on and the doctor's oh well um maybe the TARDIS is foreshadowing something that's that's very strange dot 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 Mm. now this came out in October of 92 the same month a couple of weeks later the new adventure love and war came out which of course is the one where Ace does depart the TARDIS so as a fan you'd watch this really well drawn and well written comic ...that foreshadows this idea that maybe Ace is going to leave... ...and then the new adventures actually have the departure. So, as a boy, you think, wow, this is all part of one coherent universe. Now, if you're a fan of the comic you sort of feel as though the comics like given away the ace exit to somebody else. And I can see how that would feel like a betrayal. But to me, it was all part of this wonderful universe, which then picked up because of course in love and war, Bernice Summerfield, Benny becomes the companion. And suddenly in the next issue of DWM, Benny is there just accompanying the doctor and she's drawn as per the cover of love and war. And all her characteristics are very much like from the novel. So Benny's, Sort of an amateur psychologist and likes to sort of look at body language and stuff, and she picks out that there's a spy and what his motivations are based on that body language. Like she notices that this guy stops blinking at one point, for example. Now, the story is called Pure Blood. Yes. It's four parts, and it features the Santarans. Oh, and nice. the premise is that the Santaran homeworld is attacked and destroyed and bombed. And the Sontarans are like, how did this happen? No one can get through our genetic barrier. No one could do this. And well, we can't worry about that now. Let's get the race banks and get out of here. And they go to an Earth genetic research station where they want to use their technology to start the so, start the Santaran race again. And there's a Rutan spy there who is there to stop them. And the whole conceit of it is that the Rutan's found this colony of pre-clone-era Sontarans... And said, "Hey, you, your your cousins over there have betrayed everything you stood for, and they're now genetic mutations and they're monsters. Um, hey, go bomb their planet because you're genetically the same, and you can get through their screens and all oh. of that sort of goes on. So it's these really clever ideas, but in there as well, you've got these wonderful drawings of uh Santarans. Uh, it's by Colin Andrew the, the 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 artwork, but even stuff like as the Rutan's being interrogated in this sort of field to stop its electrical field, it starts to sort of Warp out of its human shape and just stuff you could yeah. never show on TV. So that really got me into things. But boy, what comes next? Issue one nine seven, December ninety two, Emperor of the Daleks. Ah, uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> now that's had a reprint, I think.
0: It's had a few reprints, I think. Right. I've got a lovely, um, pristine edition of the reprint, written by Paul Cornell, uh, drawn by Lee Sullivan who had done a bit of work over the course of the uh, DWM comic strip. It's a six-part epic. Part one. Now, part one. You're a 12-year-old boy. You open up DWM, and suddenly there's Colin Baker. There's the Sixth Doctor and Nicola on the planet Skaro in the aftermath of Revelation of the Daleks. Davros has been picked up from Necros, taken back to... Uh, the Emperor Dalek there is putting him on trial. You've betrayed the Daleks. You're going to be executed. And the Sixth Doctor rescues Davros and takes him off somewhere in the TARDIS. What's going on? And then in the next issue, we're back to the McCoy Doctor with Bernice, and it goes on from there. And this this whole six-part epic basically fills in all the continuity gaps between Davros leaving at the end of... Revelation of the Daleks, and Davros becoming the Emperor of the Daleks by the time of Remembrance. And it does this via a trip to the planet Spiridon, where we find out that the Doctor dropped Davros off to basically uh, rescue the 10,000 Daleks that were left there at Planet of the Daleks, and the Doctor's again basically setting up the whole Dalek civil war that you see in Remembrance. Uh-huh. So it's really cool, it's really fan-wanky, like it is epically fan-wanky. Yeah, yeah. It's got the Sixth and Seventh Doctors. It's got Nicola. It's got... Sorry, I should say it's got Perry. It's got Bernice. (laughs) Absalom Dark from Nemesis of the Daleks comes back. Uh, It's just this really wonderful epic. And, of course, because issue 200 occurred during part four of this, they did the whole thing for that issue in colour. So there was this one colour issue. This one colour issue of the comic for part four of Emperor of the Daleks. Absalom Dark then turns up a month later in The New Adventures, in the book Deceit. So again, it all feels as though it's put together. Uh, On from that, the next one of sort of the big three for me was Final Genesis, four parts from August 93. Suddenly Ace is back, because she's been introduced back in Deceit, in The New Mm -hmm. Adventures, so she's now back, and it's Turbo Ace from The New Adventures. Uh, This one opens with the death of the Brigadier and the Third Doctor. Oh, okay. And we then discover this is a parallel universe where the Doctor did make peace with the Silurians in the Silurians. And then rather than go off on adventures, he stayed on Earth for, for sort of 20 years to make these two races, Homo sapiens and Homo reptilia, work together. And our Doctor from our universe decides to go to this parallel universe to pay respects to the parallel Doctor who's been blown up, but there finds this conspiracy to turn humans and Silurians against each other and genetic experiments and all of that sort of thing. Now, this is happening in August 93. In October 93, we get the new adventure, Blood Heat, which is all about a parallel universe with the Silurians where the third doctor got killed. So so again, you feel as though it's all going on, but it's just, again, such lovingly done stuff where you can have these genetic hybrids of Silurians, sea devils, and humans all drawn in a way that let's face it, 1990s BBC budget would never have been able to do. No. And the icing on the cake for this run is a one-off episode of the comic called Time and Time Again. Now, this occurred in DWM 207, which went out in November 93, of course, the 30th anniversary. So to celebrate that, we have this one-off comic strip all in colour again, where the White Guardian turns up and says, hey, Doctor, the Black Guardian's changed history, so you've never left Gallifrey. Because of that, Earth's been invaded by everybody, and <laughs> and you weren't there to stop them, and so now you've got to find the key to time and go and and, and put time back again. So the Doctor, Ace, and Bernice are each given this MacGuffin to go and each find two segments of the key to time scattered through the Doctor's time stream. So we end up with uh, the key to time segments being things like, for example the TARDIS manual in An Unearthly Child. The Doctor has to steal it from the Hartnell Doctor. They go to the Mind Robber. Um, another piece is a sword that Ace has a sword fight with the third Doctor in The Day of the Daleks and has to get the piece. Uh, Bernice Summerfield encounters the fourth Doctor in Eden and has to get a jelly baby off him because that's another segment of the Geta Time. Uh, <laughs> Ace drops in on the fifth Doctor in uh, Black Orchid and the segment is the cricket ball, so she has to get that off the Doctor. And uh, the, the sixth, the sixth, the sixth doctor is uh, actually just this very dark conversation between him and the seventh about I don't like what I'm becoming, and I'm not in a rush to get there, uh, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Then they they reassemble the key to time, and it's it's all sort of wonderful. So some other comics came after that. There were some good ones. Uninvited Guest is really good. At that point, though, they decided that the show wasn't coming back, and so maybe it was time to rest the Seventh Doctor era and they do a whole bunch of comics with different Doctors for example, uh, Gareth Roberts writes a comic for the Fifth Doctor and his TARDIS crew called Lunar Strangers where the Doctor and his team are on the moon with a bunch of um, talking cow gangsters because (laughs) why not? Exactly. Um, And so there's lots of things like that Nick Briggs writes one for the First Doctor Kane Orman for the Third Um, but the one I did want to highlight just before I wrap up is one in Issue two two seven called Up Above the Gods, which is a one-off or one episode prequel to Emperor of the Daleks, and it's basically the conversation that the Sixth Doctor and Davros have, whilst the Sixth Doctor is taking Davros from Skaro to Spireidon to set up Emperor of the Daleks, um, and that's just a really nice piece of writing there. And again, some lovely illustrations of the Sixth Doctor by Lee Sullivan. We then get. Ground Zero, which is where the comic book sort of says, no, we're going to have our own continuity now and we're going to write out Ace in our way. And then uh, with September 96, the 8th Doctor rocks up and it's a whole new era. So, look, the era that I talked about, very fan-wanky. Yeah. Very holistic universe, dare I say. But as a 12-, 13-, 14-year-old boy reading these, I was just thrown into this Doctor Who universe that was consistent, that all worked together. And as I said, the idea that something I read over here fed into something else I read over here was just such a wonderful feeling. And I enjoyed all of those stories, and it was just a lovely time that I think is far too ignored and underrated.
1: Oh, absolutely. And can I just say, I began earlier in this episode talking about Titan Comics always going back to doing multi-doctor stories And how that's quite fan-wanky in all of this. And so people out there might be thinking, well, how does that, you know, not differ to (laughs) to the fan-wank here? And I think, well, in the Titan stuff, they just do the same concept over and over and over and over. It's it's multi-doctor, multi-doctor, multi-doctor. Here, at least, there's a ton of stuff that's fan-wank, you know, in both your era and mine, but it's all different stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can go from something like Final Genesis with... references the third doctor and the brigadier and lee Shaw and all the rest of it but it's a very dark very earnest sort of thing and they, they don't actually appear you then jump into time and time again which is hey it's the 30th anniversary and we're just going to have a fun comic where we're going to find the key to time by checking in on every doctor let's have some fun
1: yeah or in indeed uh planet of the dead like i referenced you do see the old doctors but it's just shapeshifters looking like them for a few panels <laughs>
0: Yeah, look, look, absolutely. But I I think that particularly now that the show was off the air, there was a time and a place to really, to really invest in the fans that were sticking with it. Because if you're still reading this stuff by 94, and you're still buying DWM, and you're still buying the new adventures, and potentially the missing adventures, you've really invested in as a fan. And mm. I think the, the acknowledgement of that and the reward for that, I think is actually quite a worthwhile thing. Because, let's face it, in the mid-90s, Doctor Who magazine was not something that a kid would walk into the newsagent and say, hey, that's that Doctor Who show. I like watching that. I'm going to pick it up and see what what's in it. You know, yeah. that that's not going to happen. It's, it's you going to a newsagent and go, can I please get you to get in DWM for me?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly.
0: Uh, so, look, I actually don't have much more to say. I, I don't have any insightful conclusions. I just had a lot of fun talking about some really fun stories.
1: Yeah, exactly. So look, if, if any of these appeal to you folks, try and try and dig them up. Uh, I'm sure fans have made PDFs of them and they're out there on the web somewhere. Or if you've got old issues of DWM, just pull them out and see what, see what stories you've got. Bit of a lucky dip.
0: Yeah, there are places you can find old episodes of DWM out there on the internet. Or um, Panini Comics have been putting out a whole bunch of lovely sort of omnibus reprints. So they'll basically pick sort of five or six stories from a year or two and put them out as lovely editions now they're they're hard to buy first issues of most of them do sell out fairly quickly but yeah um i'm sure there are ebay copies and other various versions out there so i hope you enjoyed that and look let us know if you shared this era of dwm or there are other areas that are your favorite
1: yeah we'd love to hear from you Moving on, though, we've got a bunch of listener emails, Dave.
0: We keep asking for listener emails, and you know what? You guys have responded. So,
1: (laughs) yeah, you've delivered. Uh, Shall I go first? Yeah, I've just done a lot
0: of talking, so I'll let you go first.
1: No worries. This first one is from Christine in Tasmania. Hello, Christine. She says, wow, I just listened to number 194, The List Makers. And I think that 194 must be a, a numbering convention that uh, I think Apple Podcasts might do, because we don't actually number the episodes. Christine goes on to say, that means I've caught up, and that is amazing. I started listening when Spacefall suddenly stopped, and I thought I'd have a go at this other podcast Dave kept mentioning. Well, after a quick search, I found the Doctor Who show, but saw it started with Who Wars. So, being a bit OCD, I had to start there. Oh my god, Christine. Wow. Uh, The earliest step available was number 12. Oh, I'll have to look into that. They must have um, cut some of us off. Uh, So, having listened almost every day since the beginning of this year, I just finished. It was funny sometimes hearing predictions and comments about what someone would think in five years time, etc., when five years in your future was already in my past. (laughs) Very timey-wimey. Thanks again. I look forward now to being up to date dave spacefall question mark it was great now i might have to try a few of the other podcasts you and your special guests have mentioned diddly dumb here i come from christine
0: good luck christine with diddly dumb there are a great bunch of chaps over there i hope you enjoy it spacefall is coming back there are more episodes in the can it's been a difficult couple of years and editing's been a problem for um my colleague and i but it, it, it it will be back it will be back
1: fabulous and and christine thank you you really didn't have to go back to who wars that's a long time ago but if you enjoyed it fabulous
0: yeah i mean there must be episodes of us going gee would they would they cast a woman doctor no they wouldn't do that (laughs) all sorts all sorts Uh, our next one is from jonathan harding who writes hi guys thanks for another great and thoughtful show you'd obviously thought a lot about your picks and it made for a fascinating listen just one disagreement, though, and this is obviously in reference to our 14 for 14 picks. Yes. Not every actor in the History Boys would do well. I mean, James Corden, <laughs> he's got no chance and probably wouldn't want to, but the horrific idea gave me cold sweats. Other than that, thanks again, Jonathan Harding. Uh, yeah, good point.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even think at the time, Dave, when you said, oh, everyone in the history boys would make a good Doctor, but well picked up, Jonathan.
0: Uh, look, even uh, Richard Griffiths back in his day was a serious contender to play the Doctor, and um, look, Clive Merrison would would do a good job as well, I reckon.
1: Yeah, there are some candidates.
0: If they wanted an older one, but uh, yeah.
1: Samuel Barnett for me, though. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, Will Sanger has written to us, a uh, regular correspondent, Will Sanger. Hello, Will. He says, Hi Robin Dave, hope you're both well. I enjoyed your episode on series 2 and found it very interesting. I particularly enjoyed hearing more in depth about Dave's thoughts on the idiot's lantern. It's a story I've never connected with and am looking forward to hopefully revisiting uh, at some point to see if my opinion and perspective has changed. I also enjoyed your 14 for 14 episode and thought you had a lot of good picks. I think Rory Kinnear and Tilda Swinton would both be great, but Joe Martin is the one I'm hoping for, uh, even if it's unlikely. Outside of that, I think Sean Brooke would be my personal choice, who I think has a lot of potential. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on Doctor Who magazine comics, simply based on the fact I've barely read any Doctor Who magazine comics. I started reading Dwim in 2010, when Matt Smith had just become the Doctor, and the comics were simply not of interest to me, and have never since got into them. Keep up the good work, from Will Sanger.
0: Look, thanks for that, Will. And I just want to particularly say thank you for the comments about the idiot's lantern. Uh, I think one of the wonderful things about Doctor Who fandom, at its best, whether it's podcast, Twitter, or whatever, is sometimes somebody saying, "You know what? Give another story a go. Or give it, give it a chance through, and, and see what I try and see what I'm seeing in it." And mm. and, and sometimes I do. Then I go you know what, I can see what someone else is seeing in this story and I'm glad I gave it another look and if we can inspire others to do that, that, that's a really good thing and, really you know, part of why we do the podcast so thanks for that, Will. Yeah. We've now got a couple of emails from John Shaw. Uh, his first one says, Hi, gents. I saw this on the BBC and thought you should see it. Lost Morecambe and Wise show a huge discovery and there's a link to the BBC article there about this discovery of a Morecambe and Wise episode. This got me thinking. It's been a few years now since the BBC recovered any Doctor lost episodes, and given they upgraded the recreations, do you think we will ever recover any more lost episodes? I don't think we will, but this recovery of this Morkman Wise gives me eternal hope. Uh, He then says in his second email, we'll tackle these both at the same time, hi gents, I think I remember one of you saying you were starting a run of watching the Patrick Troughton animations, and as the Web of Fear landed on my doormat this week, I thought I would have a bit of a rewatch of them before watching that. I have to say, I do love getting to see the lost stories, but the animation is getting worse with every release. By the release of Web, we have Colonel Lithbridge Stewart doing a Highland jig and the Doctor bouncing around as if he was on a bright orange space hopper when they are meant to be having a serious conversation. Will that put me off the next release? Not a chance. Am I alone in these thoughts? Cheers, lads. John Shaw. Point one, are there any lost episodes of Doctor Who out there? The rumours are there are three, four, five individuals with private collectors. Is there any chance of a big lost find? I, I think that's unlikely at this point. Could we get a random something like Morecambe and Wise? Possibly, but I, I think private collectors are, are the way to go, Rob.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's where they're sitting now. I think uh, all the cards have been dealt, uh, all, all the dust has settled, uh, and if they're out there, people have them already. I don't think there's any sitting on shelves waiting to be found.
0: Yeah, as for animations, look, I, I gave my thoughts on those over the last couple of episodes. I, I agree the Moonbees is probably the best of the animations. Uh, I didn't think Face of Evil was particularly poor. I thought Fear from the Deep was okay.
1: This web of fear, though, is, is shocking, all the all the clips I've seen of it.
0: Yeah, so look, I'm desperately trying to reserve my judgement until my copy, which I've ordered locally, so it's still probably a month away um, from being released in Australia, and, until I see that I'm trying desperately to keep an open mind and not be prejudiced, but bloody hell, the clips I've seen look bad.
1: The art style, this sort of 3D art style, I wouldn't have even shown someone as a tech demo of, of a technology i would have gone and refined it a lot more before i even demoed it to someone but they've gone and actually made the whole episode in this style and i'm i'm dumbfounded as to how it got through i can only conclude you know whoever was in charge of the production went on holidays for a month and when they came back it was so far advanced they they couldn't stop the production it just had to go on the disc as is Because I don't think it looks good at all. It's shocking.
0: Yeah, look, as I say, um, we'll probably have more comments after we actually get to watch it. And and, and I am buying a local release of uh, the animation. So we're a little bit behind the UK. I am looking forward, though, to the Blu-ray, cleaned up, high viz, hi-fi, whatever the term is, um, (laughs) you know, versions of the actual episodes of Web of Fear. I'm looking forward to those.
1: Very good. Now, uh, we always like to do a, what have we been watching at the end of the show? I don't think you've been watching much this month, Dave, if our off mic talk was any uh, indication.
0: Yeah, look, other than season 24, which I've worked through a little bit, uh, I've sort of dipped into a few things, you know, um, just random stuff here and there, but I have been rewatching. I did want to mention the TV series Shadow of the Tower, which is up on YouTube. It's a mid-70s BBC production, basically following on from the success of The Six Wives of Henry VIII with Keith Michelle and... Elizabeth R. with uh, Glenda Jackson. They did a series, it's basically a prequel to those. It's 13 episodes. It covers the reign of Henry VII. It's not as spectacular as Elizabeth R., but where it lands, it lands really, really well. It is absolutely wall to wall full of recognizable Doctor Who actors, and, and not big names, but just lots of that's that guy from them, that, and that's that guy from them. That, that's, that's, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing, which is really cool. Um, some of it doesn't land as well as it, it, it could, some of it's a bit slow, but there's one episode, for example, though, where it's basically a two-hander between Peter Jeffries as a Lutheran heretic and Henry VII as the defender of the Catholic Church, and it's just them testing each other's faith in a really intense way because this, this heretic is, is going to be burnt. It's it, it's that, that you know, old-school television of, let's just have two well-written characters with two brilliant actors talk intelligently at each other for 50 minutes and explore the human condition. Um, and then there are other episodes which are much more um, what you'd expect, you know, intrigue and plots and battles and all that sort of thing. It's not the best 1970s historical drama, but I, I found it an interesting watch.
1: Okay, very good. I've, uh, I've been all over the place with my viewing, but some big ones I'll mention. I watched Val, uh, which is a documentary about Val Kilmer on uh, Amazon, and, obviously, Val Kilmer has uh, lost his voice these days uh, due to throat cancer. So, his uh, son narrates it. And his son has a voice not dissimilar to Val Kilmer's. Okay. So, it's in Val Kilmer's words, but coming out of his son's mouth. And the, the real... You know, big thing here is Val Kilmer is one of those guys even back in the 80s. You remember those guys who always seemed to have, like, a VHS camera on their shoulder? (laughs) Yes. That was Val Kilmer. Yeah. And so on film sets and at parties and backstage and on theatre productions, he has like a treasure trove of footage so it's just a filmmaker documentary maker's dream basically F- for anything Val wants to say like oh I was living in this apartment well we've got the footage of it um, <laughs> wow. or, or I went to London which is where I first met Joanne Wally they've got the footage of it you know so wow. it's, it's really quite interesting in that way obviously though it's from Kilmer's point of view so of course he can do no wrong and, you know, yeah, yeah. he makes the island of Dr. Moreau look like it was, you know, almost a fun <laughs> time. Um, yeah, okay, of that's, that's not
0: up to historic scrutiny.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, I've also watched a series called Dark. This is a German three uh, series um, thing on Netflix. Very, very timey-wimey, you know, with going back into different time periods and people in the same town meeting each other. Uh, thirty-three years apart, going back into the eighteen hundreds through to the the future. Very timey wimey, very Moffity. Only downside is it's full of really dour Germans, (laughs) right? And and like when uh, a few of them time travel back to nineteen eighty six at different times, and they just seem so non-plus to be there so sad and i think my god if i went back to 1986 i'd be jesus christ this is 1986 oh look at that car look at that hairstyle it's 1986 wow (laughs) you know no one does that when they time travel to any time you know back to the 50s back to the 1800s they're all just so sad and dour and you know (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> characters who are meant to even be friends uh, are often quite horrible to each other there is a great story in play I watched the whole thing, I, I shotgunned through it in about a week it's worth your time if you're into timey-wimey but my god, this this cast were just so dour um, not so dour though uh, the trip to Greece, Rob Bryden and uh, Steve Coogan getting around Greece they've also done the trip to Spain the trip to Italy and The Trip which is where they went around the Lake District in the UK it's probably a game of diminishing returns with these, you know, pseudo documentaries that they do. Yes, they're funny, but they just do the same gags and basically each show. Like, oh, let's impersonate Michael Caine for five minutes, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, they just do that in every, in every version. Although the scenery is quite nice at times. Uh, and finally, uh, Parks and Recreation. It's a show I've watched on and off over the years, but never watched start to finish. And I'm currently watching it start to finish. And I'm halfway through season five at the moment.
0: That's impressive. I once tried Parks and Rec, and I don't think I made it to the end of season one.
1: Oh, that's a shame. I, I enjoy it, I've got to say.
0: Yeah, look, a lot of people do. I, I, I'm i not saying it's bad, It just it didn't grab me something I needed to see every episode of.
1: Did you like 30 Rock?
0: I, again, I like 30 Rock, and I enjoy dipping in and out of 30 Rock, but I think that's another one that... It doesn't um, stand up for a binge watch very well because it can be very samey.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, look, very similar uh, styles in both, obviously different locations and and conceits, but uh, the style, that sort of mockumentary style, very similar.
0: Yeah, no. Look, I think they're both great to sort of watch. Oh, like, oh, that's on. I watched an episode. Uh, they're not really what I would consider binge watchable. No,
1: very fair. Well, that's the end of that episode, Dave. It just leaves one thing to do.
0: What are we doing next month, Rob?
1: Well, we're currently in the middle of a Twitter poll <laughs> as, we, as we record this. And in fact, if you are hearing this on the day the episode goes out, you might even have some time to vote in the poll. It will be ending on the same day uh, this episode goes out. Basically, we're going to do a Doctor Who novel next month, and we've put down four options.
0: Yes, and um, the reason why the poll is going now, and we're not giving you a week after dropping this episode to vote, is we actually have to read the book. So <laughs> so we needed to sort of know what we were reading in enough time to read it, make notes of it, record it, and get it out in four weeks.
1: Exactly right. And your choices are Alien Bodies by Lawrence Miles, Human Nature by Paul Cornell, Lung Barrow by Mark Platt, and Nightshade by Mark Gaddis.
0: Yep, all original Doctor Who novels are... All with stuff that both of us would like to talk about or could talk about. But, yeah, we've put it over to you. So sometime in the next few weeks, we're going to read a Doctor Who novel and we'll be back to discuss it and dive deep into it.
1: And we have no idea which one it will be, although one is winning at the moment, Dave. I can say that much.
0: I mean, we have some ideas. We've got four options. <laughs> it's one of four. <laughs> it's one of four. We, it's, we, we, don't, we don't have no idea. We have uh, some idea. But, yes, we've, we've thrown it open to you guys to... Uh, to uh, let us know what you want us to read, and we will be talking about that next month.
1: Yeah, the power is in your hands. Vote wisely.
0: <laughs> That's
1: right. All right, but until then, I've been Rob, and I've been Dave. We'll see you next time on the Goodbye. Doctor Who Show. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. You've been listening to
0: the Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave.
1: Find us online by searching for The TatJo
0: Show!
1: We also love it when you ride in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the DWShow.net.